Welcome to Reforming Slavics. This is Nick, and Tom is right there as well. Hey guys. Today we'll be talking about a very important life skill, especially for a Christian and for a lot of other people too, right? Even if you're not talking about the Bible, we have to interpret things all the time. We're talking about how do we interpret the Bible and difficult passages in the Bible. And uh, we're going to see the ways we can do that. And hopefully we can find out what the specifics are and be able to actually dive into specific passages that can help us out in preferably, you know, not controversial settings. But the passages I picked, uh, there's two or three of them that can be kind of controversial depending on how you interpret them. Yeah. And we're going to go through a few points that we found on this really awesome web- website, uh, karm.org. This is, uh, that's Christian Apologics Research Ministry. Yeah, uh, Matt Slick is the founder and essentially the guy who runs the entire thing. You might hear him on the radio sometimes. He also does a podcast. Uh, he lives here in Nampa, Idaho. Um, really cool dude. Um, he's been doing apologetics ministry for decades now. Um yeah. So much knowledge, right? You've been to his Bible study before, yeah? Yeah, I, I, you know, I personally met him before and been to his house, and he's a really, really awesome guy to hear from. He, he's very <laughs> lively and uh, can be very bold, I would say. But altogether, he does do a lot of work that really helps us out. I mean, when I was growing up as a teen, I went to his website a lot to learn about Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, he's got A to Z quite literally on Everything Bible, everything Scripture, everything Christianity. All right. So how do we interpret the Bible? Um, I, I know me and you, Tom, talk about a lot of passages sometimes that can be difficult, especially when we're going through, like, the book of Revelation. We'd run into passages where we're like, what in the world is this talking about? Like, how do we even dive into and try to understand, right? There's dragons and virgins and... Um, creatures that are non-existent on this planet at the moment, right? Yeah, for the four living creatures with all those weird faces. And that's just revelation. You go into other prophetic Old Testament books, it could be even harder. Yeah, I mean, Ezekiel, flying wheels, and mm-hmm. Daniel talking about uh, the interpretations of end times with uh, the seven kingdoms. and There's a lot in there, right? And not even including those, there's passages like Romans 8 and 9 that are extremely controversial in regards to freedom of man and the freedom of God. Yeah. And the sovereignty of God as well, right? But today we'd want to talk about like simple principles that we can apply, I can apply in my life. I mean, I do this automatically now, but it took me a while to kind of get used to doing this automatically in my mind where it clicks and like, oh... This passage means this because of this, because of that, because of that, right? You have a train of thought that kind of gives you a way or a reason why you read a passage a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, going back to karm.org, um, there is an article called How to Interpret the Bible. And there's 10 points that are laid out that give you kind of a clear path and, and a map on how to read a passage of scripture or one particular verse or in a chapter, right? It's it's all in there. And so the primary thing uh, I would say, I think James White actually said this. It was like, when you read the Bible, you are trying to find out the original intent of the author. And the first point out of the 10 that are on Karm um, would be who wrote or spoke the passage and who was it addressed to? This is a kind of, important right because imagine you writing a letter to your wife or even to your parents and it's like the context of who you're writing to is kind of important because it is yeah it is true that we could take principles we could take a truth out of the letter that you wrote to your wife but the same times at the same time it was a specific letter at a specific time to certain people. And wh- why yeah. is that important? Well, like, there's a reason why you begin the letter with dear, and you put the name of the person you're addressing it to, right? Yeah. And then you date it, so you know when you wrote it. And then you finish off with sincerely, and you put your name. So you have all those in in there for a reason, right? And especially in Scripture, it's like, when Paul writes, he's what does he write? To the Corinthians. 
to Romans. Literally in Russian, it's it's Poslania, right? The descending or, or the epistle of Paul to who? Romans. So when you read a specific book, especially the New Testament, Paul's writings, it's always addressed to someone. And it's someone Paul knows, and it's someone Paul is addressing for certain principles and certain tasks, right? And when you know the person who it's addressed to, you kind of figure out, well, why did it sound that way? Why does the language that he used mean this? Right? For example, when Paul writes to Timothy, he uses singular pronouns because he's talking to one individual person, right? When he writes to the Corinthians, he uses plural pronouns because he's talking to an entire group of people. Right? Those are two distinct contexts. Mm-hmm. And if you, the further away you go from this point, like the original intent of the author, the further you get lost in the weeds of, well, this verse can mean this, uh, or this verse might mean that. A lot of times what we try to do is we try to take the Bible and bring it into our times. And instead, what we're supposed to be doing is take ourselves and put ourselves into the history and the culture of the Bible and the times it was written in. We're not, you know what anachronism means? Uh, not exactly. Anachronistic understanding or anachronistic thinking means that you take a certain period of history and you, you take yourself with your modern understanding of technology, science, background of medicine, and you stick all those in and you try to fit them in that particular point of history. So, you go to Leviticus and it's talking about, you know, how you're supposed to quarantine for seven days if you have some kind of leprosy. It's like, oh yeah, that's because of the way viruses work, and that's the way that's the reason because bacteria works this way. Little little bugs that are microscopic did not exist in the framework or the mindset of the ancient people, right? God told them to do it, but they didn't know it was because bacteria existed or viruses existed. They had no concept of those things, and so. If you're reading the Bible with that lens, you're reading it wrong. Yeah. Right? That's just one example. We might brush up back on some of these points, like, a little bit intermixed, because some of the other points, they kind of enforce the other ones. Yeah, these are ten points, but really, you could probably sum it up into four. But these are really specific, and they kind of help someone who's just beginning or has never looked into these things. I think that really does help you out. What does the passage say? Like, what is the simple text of the passage? Mm-hmm. Right? John 3.16 or Romans 8.28, uh, right? Or so many other passages that are, like, um, little snippets that are memorized and quoted and are, are almost maxims that Christians use, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believes in him should have everlasting life or, um, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or uh, do not raise your hand on the Lord's anointed. Passages like that, they're like Christian mottos that people use at the church all the time. And they're obvious, they're clear. That's what the passage says, right? So that's really important too, because yeah. it has to be in your language. You have to understand the clear text of the scripture. And as I see a lot of, uh, you know, popular preachers, teachers, unfortunately, making the word, making the verse say more than what it says. Like, it just says this. Over-spiritualizing? It, yeah. Because if you don't stop at one point, like, where is it going to stop? Right. It, it has a specific meaning. There's not a billion things that you can pull out, out of one verse, right? Each verse has an intention and a purpose and the way you find out that purpose is you go into uh, the immediate context, which is the next point. Uh, immediate context would be when you read a certain passage, or let's say you read one verse. And then what you do is you go maybe to the beginning of that chapter, and you read through it. Mm-hmm. And you read maybe five verses up, five verses down to get the context of what the scenario was when this verse was mentioned. Is it a quote? You know, Is it an explanation? Is it a description of something? So you kind of broaden your reading, not by just reading one verse, but you read five verses up, five verses down to see what that verse was in the, sandwiched in the middle of. 
Yeah, because sometimes non-believers will be like, all right, the the Bible is so graphic. It's so evil with how many things happened in it. And it's like, all right, those those verses aren't there to tell us what to do. Like, it's not an g- example that we're supposed to do. Yeah, like... It's, it's just, like, you can't just take one verse and say, like, oh, God wants you to do that. No, it's it's a story about how... To show how evil men can get and how much we need a savior. Yeah, when you read about Abraham um, giving his wife away to a ruler just because he was afraid of him. Or you talk about how David sinned and, and slept with Bathsheba and then yeah. killed her husband. You know, you just read, you know, David sent a message to his army and po- told his officers to put... What was his name? I based on his name. Bathsheba's husband's name. Uriah. Uriah, I was supposed to say Uriah. Uriah, put Uriah in the heat of the babble, battle, and then retreat. And he, he was, you know, murdered, essentially. Yeah. But then, if you just read that... It's like, great, the Bible, you know, <laughs> authorizes and endorses schemes of murder. No, because if you read later, in the whole entire context of that story, he says, I have sinned. Yeah. And the punishment that Nathan the prophet gives is the death of the son that was born to Bathsheba and David. Yeah, and this is so important. Like one uh, one podcast guy I listened to, Chris Roseborough on Fighting for the Faith podcast, he says uh, we gotta we gotta apply these three rules of exegesis. And here are the three rules. Well, exegesis means explaining scripture. Here are the three rules for explaining scripture. All right. Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. <laughs> and yeah. it sounds redundant, but the point is that a lot of times, almost every single false teaching almost always comes out of not reading the whole entire uh, passage and interpreting, you know, instead of proving your theology out of one verse, one proof text, you're supposed to read what does that verse actually say. Yeah, because what you would do is you would find a proof text that you base your entire theology on, and then you go into a different book, and you would find an apparent contradiction that contra- apparently contradicts that verse, and you're like, well then, we have a conundrum, right? So wh- which one do we pick? It's like, no, you don't pick one or the other. You harmonize. You see the context of the passage and if you misunderstand it, which, you know, the scripture was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit and the author of it was God himself. So scripture does not have any contradictions. Yeah, and the, th- the thing, the next point on the list I'm looking at is what is the broader context context in the chapter and book? Yeah, the, the, well, verses, right, and books and kind of like the chapters. Yeah, so one thing that really helped me understand certain passages a lot more was, or when I was starting to preach was, I had to understand that this verse is in inside of a whole entire book. Mm-hmm. And not only that, it's inside of a whole entire canon of books, mm-hmm. a whole entire array, you know, of 66 books. It's like, how does this book fit into these 66 books you know what is the main message of the whole scripture and on top of that what is this this little paragraph what does it have to do like yeah you know once you have once you uh stop looking with just a magnifying glass and start realizing like well there's a way bigger picture here there's a lot more detail and it's going to take a lot more study it's going to take a lot more understanding yeah, there's definitely a, a really useful application of that, right? Even though verses and chapters were put in, in Scripture recently, I would say, in regards to the existence of Scripture, right? During Jesus' time, during the Apostles' time, yeah. during the time of even the New uh-huh. Testament father, like the fathers after the New Testament, they did not have verses, chapters, or <sighs> anything like that. So Yeah, so sometimes we'll be like, oh, but it doesn't say that like you, you have to read it within the chapter. No, there's no rule for that because a lot of times Paul is just like uh, in Romans, he's just building on a point. Like Romans one, two, three, four, he's just building on a point. On a point, he's like a builder, you know, consistently building his theology that's consistent. And yeah, if you read time, if you read through the yeah. book of Romans, it starts with who God is, what the gospel is, is the power of salvation that goes into the law. Then it goes into the depravity of man. Then it goes into the redemption of man. And then the redemption of how God fulfills that through Christ. After that, it talks about Israel, right? And it goes to the living sacrifice. Finally, 
talks about magistrates, Romans 13, how to uh, submit to the authorities. And you know, talks also about how you use all the things in theology that he mentioned to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So there's a building there. And uh, Paul did not write in verses and chapters, but he wrote an entire letter magnifying the point that here's the theology of the gospel, and here am I, how I'm presenting how God redeemed humanity through Christ. So you can look at the broader context and find that narrative, right? We use that word often um, in modern times, narrative of what the Bible is really about and what humans exist for on this earth and who God is. And then we can dive into historical and cultural backgrounds as well. As we're you know, looking in the Bible, we can look maybe outside the Bible to some possible outside sources to see, well, what did people in the Middle East wear? What, what did they eat? What did they drink? When did they go to bed? When did their day start? How do they tell time? All those things influence the way the scripture is written, right? What was the language they spoke? All those give us an idea of what the Bible means more significantly. And a lot of these you can find in scripture, but it's also helpful to read history, right? There's there's a lot of Bibles that do have commentary and kind of footnotes that are really helpful, right? Uh, and it's not like they are scripture, they're not inspired by God, but they give you a better understanding of what God is saying through the writers of the that context, right? There's history there that we're separated from those people with thousands of thousands of years a lot of things happened they did not have iphones nor you know electricity nor yeah. did they have any vehicles that were self-propelled mm-hmm. and so did- you know a, a thousand mile journey means something different to me who can get on a plane and fly yeah. than to someone who had to walk on foot right time scale was different difficulties were different and so we can't just you know take that and like oh we're gonna apply it to and it's so it's so natural for me at least to do that when i just read the bible I'm like oh you know no big deal um but then you look and it's like wait i'm i'm using my modern technology and just applying it to this person who yeah. took this long journey through all of palestine right abraham walked all his life through the promised land that eventually israel stepped into and inherited it makes a big difference because then we realize, oh, America, the Bible wasn't written for Americans. It was, <laughs> I mean, I guess. Or te- Russians, right? Yeah. I mean, it technically, I mean, I guess, you know, Americans could apply it to their lives today, but the Bible is written in a certain time and they didn't have as much food as we did. They didn't have as much luxury as we did. We didn't have as much leisure. This is a very, very unique time in history. Right. And that 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 applies to like verses like where Jesus talks about I'm the bread of life, you know, to people that were seeking him, they were seeking him because he was he was feeding them, you know, he fed the five thousand, and it's because back then being being provided for your food was a big deal. Yeah, it was a little daily basis thing. You needed food for that day, or the 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 example I've experienced in my life and heard constantly was that uh, when. A lot of Slavic people left the Soviet Union and went to America. We were like Israel going to the promised land and God was delivering us from that, um, you know, oppression that we had. Uh, And they related the Soviet Union to Egypt and they related America to the promised land. It's like, yeah, those similarities are there, but that's not what that, you know, the context of scripture was at all. You can't just apply the... Israel nation to yourself as a Russian or, or Ukrainian who came to the promised land of the United States. The United States is not the promised land. We can't take that. It's anachronistic when we take the yeah. experience that we had and try to shove it in the Bible. So that's that's not always bad to do, though, right? As long as you, you know, some people make, uh, for example, similarities to like Jezebel mm-hmm. and how like there's certain leaders in our in america that are similar to jezebel right but they're but they're using they're using the characteristics that jezebel had i know what you're talking about yeah uh, tom askell i believe from texas 
Um, he uses the characteristics that Jezebel had and applied it to certain letters. He didn't say, he didn't say this is exactly, this person's functioning exactly like Jezebel did in those times because she was a queen. We don't have kings or queens here, but he was using the characteristics there. And that brings up a really good point in regards to what, you mentioned the word exegesis, and there's a opposite word that's eisegesis, right? Um, and Exegesis just means to explain the meaning of the text. Right. Ex meaning like ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's yeah. what that word means. So ex, the prefix ex literally means out of. Yeah, so you're grabbing the meaning out of the text. Mm. Where iso means into. Isolation. Right? You're going into something. You're going into absolute myself. I'm isolated. From, yeah. <laughs> well, eisegesis literally, most of the time, literarily even right brings you to heresy right you read literature in a way where you shove your own ideas into in meanings into texts and you don't get the original intent of the author yeah did you forgot did you talk about number six Um, uh what asking what are the related verses to the passage's subject and how do they affect the understanding of that passage yeah so related passages like new new testament passages reflected in the old testament or vice versa yeah or uh or the gospels that are very similar like matthew mark and luke which would be yes the synoptic gospels right they're uh written in a way where they're different perspectives of the same story yeah and have parallel verses right we have the feet we, we have the death of christ in luke we have the death of christ in john we have the death of christ in matthew and we have the death of christ in uh, mark but all those Gospels describe the death of Christ in a different way, and they include and exclude certain and specific details. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Uh, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not included in John. And so you say, well, why didn't John include it? Well, he had a specific purpose for it. All right. And so there are certain things that um, they're not included, yet they're in the same timeline as the other verses. And you can read scripture and and compare those and come away with the fuller and bigger and more clear story of what the passage was talking about. Same thing with um, Chronicles in the Old Testament and the similarity of of Kings and Samuel, right? Same time, different perspectives. When you go to Jeremiah and you go to Isaiah, right? Like the prophets, right? They have a timeline. They have similar, they have overlapping timelines and you can get the story of Israel through that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Um, do my conclusions agree or disagree with related areas of scripture and others who have studied this passage? It's like, did I just find something new that no one has ever thought of um, finding in scripture? Even though the Christian church has been established and spirit-filled and been led by God for the last 2,000 plus years? Like, did I just find something new and exclusive no one ever has found out from a specific text? No, no, you have not. And if you have, it's called heresy. Um, In other words, we can look back through history. We can look back through church history. We can look back through the church fathers, the reformers, uh, the people in um, ages before, right? who read the Bible, found out what it meant, and wrote it down. There's nothing new in the way of theology that you can possibly reach out of Scripture uh, if you truly believe that the Scriptures have been read and cherished and God has been speaking through them for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, and this is this might be really controversial, what Nick just said, but it's true. The Bible is it's our, you know... It's how God speaks, and if you have new ways and new revelations of what certain passages say, then how are you supposed to test it? Like, right. Is that the original intent of the author? Yeah, like I said earlier, if one verse means a hundred different things, uh, then how do you know which one is false and which one is true? And now, What is the standard? And people would sometimes, they would say, well, if it contradicts scripture, then... It doesn't mean that, you know, we have to understand that our heart is is very deceitful and 
a lot of times we put too much uh of our own lived experience yeah into a text and just too much confidence that we're able to understand the scripture how to say it, just very flippantly you know explaining the text yeah it, it seems as though you can really quickly fall into the trap of like saying well i'm just gonna read this text and I'm going to find five allegories that apply to my life and I'm going to interpret it that way. Completely ignoring the context, right? What the passage actually says. Mm-hmm. We could actually do that, right? In in the book of Revelation, it talks about the churches, the seven churches, right? And in one specific passage, um, there's a very overused, I would say, is... Um, I stand at the door and knock. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come and commune with him, right? Mm-hmm. And people say, well, if you're in sin and you're not a Christian, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. And if you just open your door to him, he'll come in and he will have a feast with you. Ignoring the entire point of the passage that was written to a church a church who already knew who Christ was, a group of people, not one specific individual, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you use the text in that way, you're not using the text in the way John meant for it to be understood, mm. right? Or a really interesting passage we talked about on Monday was um, Jeremiah where it says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans of, right, not to just, I gotta pull it up. And to prosper you, not not to harm you. Not to harm you. And it's like, well, I'm going to write that. Can you pull that up, actually? I spaced on the specific. It's it's a lot of times used on, like, graduation, you know, cards, or it's used on 18th birthdays or people going off to college, things like that. Oh, 29-11. Yeah, and (laughs) you know the funniest thing right now? It's on my notebook that's standing in front of me. For I know the plans I have for you. Yeah, twenty nine eleven. Mm-hmm. And well, people... doesn't God know the plans for you? Yeah, He does. Is it to prosper you? Yeah, it is. What? But what happens when you're not prospering, right? What happens when you're when you live in a famine? For example, when Joseph spent an enormous chunk of his life being accused falsely, going to prison. And not prospering for a really long time. It's like, does that verse apply to him? Well, no, because the verse that was written in Jeremiah was set specifically to Judah, who was about to go to captivity, yeah. right? And spend 70 years in slavery to Babylon. And God's saying to them, I'm going to prosper you through that. You're going to be prosperous. And eventually you'll return to your land. Yeah, and this is pretty easily understood if you just read verse 10 right before you want to read it? it says for thus says the lord when 70 years are completed for babylon i will visit you and i'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place yeah so if you wait want... what place jerusalem oh. right ezra and nehemiah rebuilding of the actual temple well, the temple yeah. the, the, the wall surrounding the city yeah and the problem is when we uh decide that our interpretation, how it applies to our life, is more important. Or than, more authoritative. Yeah, than what was actually, like, God was actually talking to. Like, sometimes there'll be a preacher and he'll just, like, put it off to the side or barely even mention it, you know? What, who's, who's uh, God actually talking to and why is it important? Yeah, you disregard the very words God has spoken and you want to apply your own desires and authority to the passage. Yeah, because right? there is a way that we can apply uh old testament scriptures to our lives right? definitely yeah but there's a certain order that we have to do it first yeah right? and you can you can, there are passages that talk about god wanting to prosper christians and prosper the church and preaching the gospel and evangelism and growing right but that verse is not talking about it so that's a that's a christian and biblical and theologically correct concept yeah. you're just using a wrong verse to support there's your, there's your other yeah there's hundreds of other scriptures that you know, that do actually apply to your Christian walk, more like Romans eight twenty eight, right? Yeah. And things that are actually actually talking about, you know, don't try to make a text say what you don't want it to say, right? 
because then you then you're you're twisting scripture well you can make any scripture say pretty much anything you want yeah. and we get really angry at mormons we get frustrated with jehovah's witnesses or uh, even you know the catholics to a certain extent about the way they misuse scripture but if we have a frustration with them which is righteous and just we should hold the same standards on our own interpretations or our own reading of scripture, right? Yeah. So we would be consistent and capable of discussing things with people like that, mm-hmm. right? And the, yeah, Second Timothy four three says, "For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to set their own desires, they will gather around for a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to say." Right. So there's. The problem is not always that, you know, a false teacher, like, trying to snatch you away. It's actually the people looking for for their teaching. They're looking for that false teaching because they have itchy ears because they're sinful. Right. And, and... They don't want the sound doctrine. They don't want the sound uh, good thing that the Bible actually says they want. Sometimes I don't want it too, right? If you... Yeah. If you... <laughs> if you're honest... Well, that's the thing, right? You're as a Christian, you make war against uh, the thing that makes you say, "Well, I just had an extreme heated argument with uh, a pastor or a friend or a spouse, my wife, and I know I was wrong in the way I behaved and the way I acted, and, and the scripture confronts me." But I'm going to try to somehow flip it on its head and say, "Well, eh." I don't want I don't want that applied to me because that hurts my ego that hurts my pride, and that's why we need the spirit to not only understand scripture but have the spirit apply apply the scripture to heart so it actually changes how we view ourselves and how we view God and what the scripture says. Right, the scripture is a double edged sword that pierces through the heart and, and divides the soul and the spirit and judges the intentions of the heart. And so if we want to be honest with the scripture, we have to deal with it in the right context and use those tools, um, which are simply yeah. called hermeneutics, right? Context, history, yeah, original intent of the author. Yeah, that's why I honestly, I do enjoy teaching that goes through verse by verse, that goes through chapter by chapter, because Apostle Paul that and wrote the letters and other Old Testament passages, right? Mm-hmm. They, the Bible has such a good balance of times when it's warning the Christians, when it wants to encourage Christians, and when it talks about hell, when it talks about heaven. The Bible is very consistent, mm-hmm. right? And if you just go through what the Bible says verse by verse, instead of going like picking topics, which isn't always bad, right? Yeah. Getting a uh, whole theology systematic theology of what a certain topic says throughout the well, whole bible that's literally called systematic theology right yeah but the the point i'm trying to make is you're gonna get a good balance of what god wants to tell the church if you just go through certain you know books verse by verse chapter by chapter yeah uh it's it's definitely important to do that i want to pull up some passages that yeah, I, i've picked out and we got to be careful so we don't read the Bible in a way where we just fly through it and care not about the specifics of, of things like this, right? In Ephesians, verse 5, 8, right? This is a verse that's speaking about getting drunk with wine. Time you got it yet? I, I can turn to it. Ephesians 5, 8? Yeah. And instead of being drunk Wait. with wine, you'd be filled with the Spirit. Wait, it's not 5.8, is it? Maybe I wrote it down wrong. It's 5.18. I have terrible handwriting. I was actually looking through it for that verse all day. And for some reason, my mind was like, it's in Corinthians, it's in Corinthians, it's in Corinthians. And I literally looked through the entire 1 Corinthians. I looked through the entire 2 Corinthians. and like, where is this thing? You know, I just Google. I'm like, oh, Ephesians, right. Yeah, it says, Ephesians 5.18... And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know, there was a apologist that said, don't ever uh, quote just one scripture, one one passage. Mm. 
because the Bible wasn't written like that, which is it's kind of challenging to think about it because there's not. I mean, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that, but it does make a good practice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, we're specifically talking about like people who are reading scripture and come up with challenging passages because a lot of the scripture is really easy to understand and it flows really well. But there are verses that pop up that challenge our understanding of our modern context and our modern culture or the things we thought think about or the sin in our own heart and it kind of confronts it and we have a choice to make. Do we do we find and dig deeper into what the scripture means or do we say, well, I think it means this and this makes me comfortable and all right in the way I'm living my life and so I'm not going to dig deeper. Right, and uh, you can go the very opposite of it. You you can do the Pharisee route, where you read a scripture and you drop a whole bunch of eisegesis or your own understanding to make it seem as though it's more holy. Because a lot of people use their verse to say, "Well, it says not to get drunk with wine, so you best not be drinking alcohol." Yeah, so it completely abolishes any alcohol, right? Like, yeah, or yeah. any wine. Yeah. In other words, don't don't be drinking because drinking is a sin. It's like that's not what the passage of the text says. It, it simply says that don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. I can go the other direction. <laughs> it says to be not drunk with wine. Uh, doesn't say whiskey. Doesn't say beer. Right. And there are legitimate people who who are like that who would say, well, oh, they say don't get drunk. You can't get drunk with wine, but you get drunk with whiskey. Yeah, you can get drunk with whiskey, right? And it's like if if you're gonna if you're gonna go that route. You're misunderstanding the entire passage and the reason Paul is saying it because the very next verse, what do you say? But be filled with the Spirit. Yeah. And if you look in these actual verses, I was looking at this and it's actually, it gives like a don't do this and but do this. Like There's a pattern in a way where Paul writes to form certain rhetoric, right? Yeah. Like 17, it says, uh, therefore do not be foolish. But it, but what? But and understand what the will of the Lord is. And then, like, oh, here it is. Verse 11 it says, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Yeah, and if you just read that specific passage and you ignore the rest of Scripture, you can legitimately make the argument, hey, it says don't drink wine. I mean, don't get drunk with wine. It means I can get drunk with any other substance. Yeah. It, is, it doesn't say... Nowhere in scripture does it say don't snort glue to get high. But clearly, you know, it that is a sin. And why is that? Because God is writing it in a way where Paul's trying to describe to these people that you're not supposed to alter your mind to pursue and be be in communication or in communion with God. Mm-hmm. What you're supposed to do is you're not supposed to go to a substance to communion with God. You're supposed to go to God through the Spirit and be filled with Him in order to experience His presence, in order to understand His truth, and in order to live a life that is holy and acceptable to Him. Yeah, and Romans twelve three says, For by grace that, that you have given, I say to everyone among you, do not to think themselves more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. Right. How are you supposed to think soberly? How are you supposed to think clearly if you are under the influence of marijuana or you're you're actually drinking to the point of getting buzzed or getting drunk? Yeah, and it seems like a trivial thing, and yet this scripture is misused and abused all the time. Yeah, and obviously, like I don't drink beer, like I don't drink beer, but that's for a personal choice. Like, you know, I've tasted I think it's gross anyway. You know, I've, I've tried to sip. It's Shame like, it, you, Tom. <laughs> dude, it just tastes like kvass and it's gross. I don't like kvass. Yeah, and, and then a charismatic group uh, took this verse and what they did is they flipped it on its head by saying, well, because we're not supposed to get drunk with wine, we're supposed to be filled with the spirit, there should be a concept of getting drunk in the spirit. But that's not what it says. Right. No, like it literally does not say. But instead of don't instead of not getting drunk with wine, be drunk in the spirit. It doesn't say that. It just says be filled with the spirit, right? And then they'll bring up Acts two, right, where the the they thought the the apostles were drunk, drunk with wine, and Paul, I mean, Peter, I keep on mixing Peter and Paul. Peter says, 
brothers. No, it's, it's you know, it's not like you. It's not like you assume. Yeah, it's not. Paul Peter says it's 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 early in the morning. We're not drunk with wine. Yeah, it doesn't say. It's not like it's not what it looks like. We're actually drunk in the superior. Or yeah, something. he doesn't say that, and so we can take that particular verse and we can twist it and change it yeah. in any way we want. Plus, plus it says, you know, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. That's what, what uh, the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, and we could take these verses that are found throughout Scripture about wine, right? And we could find them and assume that every single time a specific word is mentioned, it means the same thing over and over and over again. And that's not true because we have to be more careful and have to be able to look in a passage, go through it, read it, and be able to understand what the original intent of the author was. Right? Yeah. What are we supposed to get? What What is information that is trying to be portrayed through, through what is being said? Not what we want to say, not how does it apply to my computer or how does it apply to me getting rich? How does it apply to X, Y, or Z? We should take as much presuppositions that come from our modern world away and try to see what the culture and experience of the people who were reading that verse for the very first time actually was. Yeah. Because if we do apply some of the things that we read, right, the steps to interpreting the scripture, Mm -hmm. like what what is the book of Ephesians? It's who is it written to? It's written to a people group who found out that Christ is Lord fairly recently compared to the Jewish people who knew that Messiah was coming, right? And they had a controversy in regards to faith. Ephesians 2 is very famous by saying, by faith you are saved not of what works that Mm -hmm. no man can boast. And so we see that it's specifically addressing the Ephesians about what the gospel, and the gospel is the thing that gives you salvation, the act of Christ that gives you salvation simply by putting your faith and trust in Him and by looking at the cross. And the only way you can do that is if the Spirit gives you the capability, if the Spirit of God actually fills your heart and opens your eyes to see, right? It is the gift of God that is given to you. And the way you hinder yourself from seeing the gift of God every single day and and glorifying Him in that manner is by consuming alcohol and being yeah. completely blind out drunk so your mind isn't clear to pursue god through reading a scripture and the spirit filling your heart yeah he addresses the gospel and then you know what is the next thing in like ephesians 4 he says therefore as a prisoner for the lord i urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which are you called and every time you see a therefore it means you have to ask yourself what is it therefore John Piper says that all the time. Yeah. What is therefore, therefore? Yeah, it's therefore because he just made a point. He's saying, "You, I just told, I laid out the gospel. I laid out what I've saved you from, and now walk as I've." Uh, yeah, there's a newness of life because of your transformation in the gospel. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's what he if, says in yeah verse seventeen. Yeah, it says the he, new life. If you are saved by faith in Christ. The evidence of your salvation is expressed in the fact that you have a new life and that is completely distinguished from the days of the past where you did not know Christ. Yeah. There's a stark difference. There's a black and white there. Yeah, and you see, like, how much better it is to, you know, that could be pretty much a sermon explaining what the gospel is and applying it to Ephesians 5, uh, 17, right? Yeah. 5, 17, and 18. And that's so much better than if you you would just hear a preacher talk about don't drink wine because of this verse. First of all, you're twisting the scripture. Yeah, it says don't get drunk. Yeah, and you're adding to the commandments like the Pharisees did. Mm-hmm. Right? They said don't wash... Uh, he said your disciples don't wash their hands. What are they doing? All right, you're you're adding to scripture. That's, and uh, Jesus says your hearts are far from me. Your, your, lips, your lips are close. Right, your lips—they worship me, but your hearts are far from me. It's because they were adding commands to what the Bible, what the Bible says, and nowhere in Scripture does it says, does it say, "Don't drink wine." People could do another thing where they grab a, a word in Scripture and they bounce 
around and they go through every single place where scripture states that specific word and they combine all that and they say well this is or what they do is they find one specific verse like here talks about wine in a negative context yeah and now they drag that negative context every single time wine is mentioned or they do a reverse where they see wine mentioned in a positive context and they drag that positive context through every single possible passage that speaks of it instead yeah. of taking each passage at its own context its own worth and its own representation of what the author is trying to address yeah because it the bible describes wine as a good thing but it also describes it as a very very dangerous thing yeah right? if it's taken in a way where it's um misused and even the the very gospel essentials of the passover and the fact that we celebrate communion as a congregation includes wine right there's a meaning behind that, right? Christ's blood being poured out for all, right? And we participate in that. So you can't just take one specific context. Don't, you know, it's it's really hypocritical if people say, don't drink alcohol, and then they drink alcoholic wine at the Lord's Supper. Make it an exception that way. Plus, it, plus love, Slavic people drink kvass, homemade kvass, which is like, after a while, it's like 3% three, <laughs> 3% alcohol or something. <laughs> Yeah, and so, but, but you know, it doesn't say don't get drunk with Kwasi. It says don't get drunk of wine, Tom. So you, Kwasi is okay. Mm. And uh, it seems very trivial. It seems very uh, funny in that way. But uh, verses can be taken out of context to the point where um, people start losing the understanding of the deity of Christ, right? People say, well, God always, Jesus always says, I'm the son of man. Jesus never says, I am God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus says, I am God. That's true. In, in our English. But then you look in scripture and it literally says Jesus saying, Ego, right? You know, I am. The same I am that was the literal name of God. Yeah. Well, the Bible also never, Jesus never says, I am the Messiah. Yeah. He does say, you know, I am he who you're sp speaking about. You know, the woman that's Samaritan well. Mm -hmm. But he never specifically just says those words. Well, the Bible never says, you know, God is the Trinity either. But we derive these things from the consistent reading, the plain reading of understanding the text. Yeah, like when it speaks about the Father forsaking the Son when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Who forsook Jesus? It was the Father, right? And if Jesus claims to be the I Am, which is Jehovah, or if you want to say, you know, Yahweh, then how is the Father forsaking, how does God forsaken Jesus if, if they're both God? And then how is the Spirit God? Because Jesus says, I have to go, but I will send another. Right? There, There's verses like that, and... You can say, well, all those verses contradict each other, and they don't make sense, and therefore the Bible is inaccurate. Or you could say, okay, what's the context of every single verse? What does it mean? And then if you read the scriptures as a story, you find out, well, there's this being who has three persons. The being is God, right? He is the I am. He is eternal. And yet he has the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So many different ex excuses that people have about um, their own interpretations of Scripture in regards to their sin, in regards to the prosperity gospel, in regards to just being um, not churchgoers, right? There, there's so many little nitpicky things that people say, well, I'm going to stick to this very, very specific passage this very, very specific verse. I can do all things through Christ who threatens me. Right? It literally means I can do all things. And then they ignore the very context of the passage where it says, well, Paul actually says, I'm content. And I can do all things in being content through Christ who strengthens me. While being in jail. So, I, I can be in jail. It's not, it's not like a positive thing where I can do all things, meaning you're going to win every single football game you play. You're going to pass every single test you do. You take, you're going to, you know, marry the person who you 
love and just no. adore and you have a crush on or the fact that you're going to jump that bridge on a motorcycle and not get hurt like right it's it's the you're, fact that you are content and you can do all difficult yeah. things that verse is not about right? when i've won the football game it's about am i content in christ when i've lost it yeah and i think honestly the most practical advice that i could just give right now about understanding scripture more is just to read the bible more just to under, just read it and read it over and over and over again because you don't have to be some scholar you don't have to be some super genius to understand scripture verses you just have to understand what the bible says and a lot of there's a lot of christians that haven't even read the whole bible you know from genesis to revelation and yet if we just had a bigger and overall perspective of the bible then a lot of our questions would just dissolve yeah they'd be answered like it's a great advice that you give because i take that advice all the time all the points that we mentioned from the article at from carm right for the most for the majority of my christian life and my teen years even like going to my 19 19s and tw- like 20 i didn't know those specific specific things like you know, context, historical context, uh, read five verses up, read five verses down. None of that really came to mind, but what made me automatically think about all those things was I constantly read the Bible, and when I found a verse that didn't make sense to me, I'd mark it down, and I'd continue reading, and I'd come back, and I'd continue reading, and I'd find passages that are similar, right? And I'd challenge myself to understand what that meant. And then I'd listen to a sermon about those passages and I'd see what that guy said. And I'm like, I don't like what that guy said at all because that makes no sense. So I'm going to listen to this guy. And this guy kind of makes sense, but there was a point I disagree with, right? And then you constantly just butt your head against challenges and eventually you still stick to scripture. You like dig, dig, dig deep. Like Jesus says, man who built his foundation, what do you do? He dug deep and he put a solid foundation rather than the person who built their foundation on sand and the waves came and destroyed uh, the building they wanted to build. Like You have to dig in the scripture. You have to be able to read scripture and then go back and read it again and then challenge yourself to actually explain the passages that is really difficult for you to understand.